I'd like to thank the Chazak organization as well as Torah Anytime I call. These two Queens-based organizations, the dynamic duo of Tyra, because they are so amazing in the Harbatzas Tyra, the proliferation of Tyra, not just in the Queens area, not just in New York, but really throughout the entire world. And I'm very grateful that they're hosting this particular shear, uh, which is going to be talking about my brand new Sefer. It's being published by Artscroll and being released in Mirza Hashem this week, and it's called Great Jewish Journeys. Before I begin to discuss the Sefer Great Jewish Journeys, I'd like to just make a slight uh, request on behalf of all of the uh, viewers of my broadcast, the WhatsApp broadcast, that you join as well. And by doing so, you get a weekly clip of a Gadol B'Yisrael every single week, another lesson, another beautiful Yisrael that's produced in a very professional manner. And we have about 5,000, close to 5,000 people currently and growing every single day, Baruch Hashem. If you'd like to join this wonderful WhatsApp broadcast, I'd like you to please message me right now if you can. My number is 973-664-7911. That's 973-664-7911. Just message me, join, and you will be signed up, and every week you'll get a, a broadcast of a, of a great Jewish wisdom clip that I produce on a weekly basis, plus my status also provides a lot of great uh, value and uh, content that I think you'll greatly enjoy. In the year 2008, serving as Mashkiach of Lander College for Men, based Medishal Talmud, I gave a weekly shir, uh, it's called a vad, a musar vad, and every year I choose a different topic, and one year, that year, I chose the topic, Letters of G'dayla Yisrael. If you look throughout a lot of svarim, you'll find that G'daylim wrote major letters. Some of them are well-known, some of them are less known, but all of them are either very historical, inspirational, they provide motivation either to Klal Yisrael or to individuals that they're writing to. And every week I photocopied a different one of these wonderful, important letters of a different gadol every week, and we would learn it together. And Baruch Hashem was a very popular shir that year. And at the end of the year, uh, I remember one of my Talmidim said, Rabbi, I think that something like this should be published as a book. And it was sort of a light bulb moment. And I said, you know, what? I think that's a great idea. So what I did was I translated a sampling of these letters um, and I brought it to Arts Girl, to Rabbi Meir's Ladowitz, Zechitzadik Lebracha, who was the president and the founder, the visionary behind the Arts Girl that we all know in terms of the Siddur, the Chumash, the Shas, and thousands of books. And I published a few sarim prior to that, and I went to his office and I presented this idea, and I had a title for it, Great Jewish Letters, and he immediately loved it. In fact, he told me that he himself had always wanted to publish such a book on the letters of G'day Yisrael, but he was looking for the right opportunity, the right author, 
and he was very much behind it, and he not only said he wants to publish it, but he wanted to publish it in a very lavish, beautiful way. And so that coming year, I worked very hard on not only translating about 120 letters, but also finding beautiful portraits of each gadol, whenever we have them, and then the actual original copies of the letters themselves, and anything that would be able to bring the Sefer more to, uh, to a reality, and to make it crisp and clear, and a Kiddush Hashem, uh, when you look at it, it should be a beautiful object that a person could learn and really allow themselves to be absorbed into each and every letter. And Baruch Hashem, it became a, a best-selling book. Thousands of copies were, were sold. And I got a letter from a Rebbe of mine who said that he's already anticipating the next books in the series. And then I thought to myself, wow, you know, Taco, what else could we write about? What other venue, what other vehicle could we be able to explore the hearts and the minds of G'dayli Yisrael through. And I came up with another idea of Great Jewish Speeches, which is all of the great messages and the addresses that were given uh, by G'dayli Yisrael. And it was a little bit harder to find those. But again, Rabbi Zlatowicz was on board, and I gave a vow that year on that topic. And then um, the next year, we published Great Jewish Speeches. And then once you get addicted to publishing, um, you can't stop. So basically the next uh, book was a small pamphlet, not a pamphlet, but a small soft cover volume called Great Jewish Wisdom, which has quotations of B'dayli Yisrael that were superimposed on beautiful uh, pictures, beautiful photographs, and that became also Baruch Hashem very, very well received. From there we went to Great Jewish Treasures, which is another coffee table-sized book on the artifacts of G'dayli Yisrael, fascinating pieces that G'dayli Yisrael owned um, in terms of mitzvah objects or personal objects or fascinating things that sort of brought that particular Gadol story to light through these, uh, through these particular artifacts. And then finally, uh, we had two more, and uh, we had Great Jewish Classics, which is the great sarum of, uh, of Jewish history of Gedele Israel for the last thousand years, the classic sarum. So if you want to study about not just the actual Sefer, but understand the background, the history, the influence of each of these sarum, uh, together with pictures of the manuscripts of these sarum, or the early editions, the first edition of these books, and uh, all the different... Um, things that went into creating these masterpieces of Jewish scholarship and literature. Uh, all of that is provided in Great Jewish Classics. Uh, last year we produced a book called Great Jewish Photographs, which is a smaller um, soft cover book, which we have about 100 pictures of classic photographs of Gedalim. And then on the other side of the fold is the story behind the picture, bringing these pictures to life and making these Gedalim come to life in a certain sense. Uh, through the medium of photographs. After I published the book, Great Jewish Treasures, 
a scholar came to me and said, you know, you missed a lot of artifacts. I was surprised you didn't put a lot of artifacts in your book. And I said, uh, really, which ones, uh, which ones did I miss? And he said, well, there are so many living artifacts throughout the world in terms of the structures, the yeshivas that are still alive in, in Europe, that are still standing, Volazhin and Tells and Panovich, these were all the great European yeshivas. They're still very much here. Those are, they're not small artifacts, they're larger artifacts, but they're artifacts nonetheless. And he says, and what about all of the kvarim? What about all the graves of tzaddikim that exist throughout the whole world that you also left out of your book? And so, acknowledging his point, I said, you know what, maybe that would be the next frontier to explore in this series. So, again, with the approval of Rabbi Meir Zlatowicz's son, Yibad Wachayim of Gedalia Zlatowicz, who's the, the successor to his great father, and he himself is doing a phenomenal job in furthering his father's great mission, he, uh, we, we decided to publish a book called Great Jewish Journeys. And it's called Great Jewish Journeys to the Past, because what we're really going to be doing is going into history and traveling to all the places throughout the world, virtually, um, in Eretz Israel, in the Middle East at large, Europe, America, and finding all of the fascinating Torah landmarks and Kibre Tzadikim that are all over the world. And unfortunately, because of Corona, we're not able to travel extensively in this day and age yet, hopefully soon. We will be able to, but in the meantime, what we're doing with this great Jewish Journeys coffee table-sized book is we're allowing people the experience of traveling throughout the world from the comfort of their own home. So what I'd like to do right now is to talk a little bit about uh, what this book hopes to accomplish and the significance of these landmarks throughout the world. So it is amazing that after so many centuries, a millennia of history, that there are still many uh, landmarks that still exist. Of course, the Kaisal Hanarabi, uh, it's hard to even call that a landmark, it's such a central part of our heart. But throughout Eretz Yisrael and throughout the world, there are great shuls. For example, and you travel to Prague, uh, and you'll find the, the famous shul called the Altnai Shul, which was the shul that was led by the Maral of Prague, the famous Maral, the Kliyakar, and many, many other great Torah luminaries led this particular shul, which is beautiful, it's so iconic, everybody, I think, recognizes the way the shul looks. And so we provide pictures of the shul and a little bit of a background, why it was called the Altnai Shul, different opinions, whether it means old, new, because it was re remade at one point in history from an old shul to a new shul, it was refurbished. Some say that it was built out tonight on the condition because some stones were taken from Yerushalayim and brought to Prague on the condition out tonight that someday they would be brought back to Yerushalayim when Mashiach comes. But then there are, there are shuls all over the world. There are yeshivas, as we mentioned before, that still exist today. The, um, the great yeshiva Chachme Lublin that Rav Meir Shapiro founded. 
a magnificent edifice that cost millions of dollars back in the early 1900s. And he decided that he would make a, a beautiful library in this building, and he would make uh, a model of the of the Beis Hamikdash, so that the boys that were learning the the topics involved with the building, the Beis Hamikdash, should come into that room and, with their own eyes, envision how the Beis Hamikdash looked with all the various rooms and parts of the Holy Temple. And there would be so many other features in that particular building. That's still existent. You can still go to the city of Lublin and, and enter that building today. There is the Panovich Yeshiva in the city of Panovich. There's Tel, there's the Mir Yeshiva. These are not, I'm not talking about the namesake Yeshivas in America and in Eretz Israel. I'm talking about the original structure. All of those landmarks are still they're still here. Some you can have access to enter, some you can, some are boarded up, but it's truly amazing. And of course, the mother of all yeshivas, the Lajan, is still intact. The building is still here, which is quite phenomenal that after so many hundreds of years, such a historic landmark still exists. The wars didn't manage to destroy it, and, and the, the weather did not destroy it, the ravages of time did not take it down. It's still existent, which is quite remarkable, the Radha Yeshiva, the Chavetz Chaim. But perhaps the main part of the book is the Kivrei Tzadikim, those great graves that the Tzadikim are buried by. And we know, we just learned in this week's parasha in Chayesara about the importance of a place to, to bury Tzadikim. Maris Machpelah was the home of Adam and Chava, and then Avram and Sarah, Yitzchak and Rivka, Yaakov and Leah, and this is a place that Jews have always prayed by, and Daven by to Hashem, pleading with Hashem that in this chus, we don't pray to the actual tzaddikim chas we pray to Hashem, and we ask that the great merit of the righteous that are buried there should stand us in good stead before the heavenly uh, throne. We know that Kalev and Yeshua, two of the spies that went into Eretz Yisrael, they made a stop on the way at the Maras Machpel to Davin that Hashem should save them from the terrible plans that the other Meraglim were plotting to speak badly about Eretz Yisrael. So Kibrit Sadikim are a very, very powerful place by which to Davin. And Thank God, throughout the entire world, many, many, not all, but many of the Kibre Tzadikim, from the times already of the Rishayim, going back eight, nine hundred years, thousand years sometimes, those great places are, are still alive. They're still around to be able to go and pray. Sometimes the graves have to be rebuilt. Some of them have the original graves, but we know exactly where they are and we're able to go and dive in there. So what I did was geographically compartmentalize the book. So we have a section on Eretz Yisrael, then we have a section on Egypt, and we have a section on um, Morocco, and then we have a section on Eastern Europe and Western Europe broken down by the various countries, and then of course the United States of America. And in each place we have a, a sort of introduction to that particular country, 
by telling of all of the great, not all of them, but most of the great landmarks in terms of the shuls, in terms of the homes of the tzaddikim, and the yeshivas that exist there, and the addresses that if a person would ever be able to go to those particular places, they could take this book with them and, and, and find the actual place easily. And then, of course, we broke down section by section many of the tzaddikim that are buried there. So every tzaddik or female tzitkaniyais, there, there, we put women in the book, Baruch Hashem as well, and uh, every one of them has their own unique spread in the book that has a picture, when it's possible, of that particular gadol. On the other side, a picture of the matseva, of the actual tombstone, the gravestone of that tzaddik, so you can actually read what it says about them there. And then other types of uh, information, sidebars, um, fascinating uh, features that every single gadol brought to this world, and particularly looking at the end-of-life issues of those gadolim, maybe something that they conveyed on their deathbed, maybe something avart that they might have said, a Torah idea that they said about the concept of life versus death. Maybe it's a story that surrounds their final years, or maybe it's something about the matseva that's of interest, something that, about the epitaph that has some significance to us. But every single gadol, I try to create a, a feeling of as if you're standing by their grave and you want to take away an important life lesson from each and every one of them, and to see them from as, a, as almost a Rebbe teaching you an important lesson about life and death. And this is something that Shlema Melech writes about in his Sefer, in his Megillah, called Kehelas. And he says a few words. He says, When a person visits a house of mourning, when a person visits a grave, when a person thinks about death, the living should place it on their heart, the realities of life, that life is not infinite, life does not last forever, we're mortals, and there will be a time that we will no longer be here. And when a person visits the graves of Sadiqim, they walk away with profound lessons of how not to be depressed about death, but how to galvanize oneself, how to motivate and inspire oneself so that they live a life like these Gedeon did, a life that's so worthwhile living, and so and leaving such an important legacy, each and every Gadol of their own right, they left a legacy. And I, I, I tried to convey in this book the unique legacy and the unique messages, the timeless messages of each of these Gedeon. I just want to point out just a few interesting epitaphs that I dealt with, a few Matsevas that um, sort of, you know, needed some commentary on and that I gave for each of them in the book, but there are many, many others. I'm just going to use a few examples here. If you visit in the city of Tzvas, the grave of Rabbi Yosef Karer, who was the author of the Shulchan Aruch, you'd expect an elaborate tombstone with many, many lines and verses about the greatness of this of this Gadol Shabbat How can we even uh, described Rabbi Yisav Kara, the great Mechaber, the author of Shulchan Aruch, who codified the entirety of Jewish law uh, so that we all have a, a handbook every single day and every moment of the day by which to live from. If you visit his grave, though, you might be surprised of the simplicity 
of his tombstone. All it says on his grave is that here is buried Baal HaShulchan Aruch, the author of the Shulchan Aruch. That's it. It doesn't say anything else. It doesn't say a date that he died. It doesn't say where he grew up. It didn't say, it doesn't say his other many Sarim classics that he wrote. All it says is, here is buried the author of the Shulchan Aruch. And that sort of surprised me. Why wouldn't there be a more elaborate epitaph? But I, upon thinking about it, I realized that this is exactly the perfect epitaph for him because we know one thing about Yosef Karay, that he had tremendous humility. His modesty was second to none. He, he was peerless in the sense that as much as he accomplished, he always felt very humbled by his accomplishments. In fact, we have a Misar, we have a tradition that when Rabbi Yosef Kara was busy codifying Jewish law into what we refer to as his Shulchan Aruch, the Seth Hebel, there were a few other Gedalim, tremendous rabbis throughout the world and other places that were fascinatingly also working on the exact same project. Now, and their names were also Yosef, by the way. And the reason as part of our Messiah, that Rabbi Yisif Karaz was the one out of all the others that were chosen to be the great codification of, of, of Halacha, and it's the Shulchan Aruch that has a prominent place on every bookcase throughout the world of Jewish homes and Jewish libraries and yeshivas and, and shuls, is because of his great Anivas. He merited being the Baal Machaber of the Shulchan Aruch that we all use and know and live by because he was so humble. And so I felt it was appropriate that he should have the humblest of, of tombstones, of, of epitaphs that just says, here is buried the author of the Shulchan Aruch because that reflects perhaps greater than any other praise who is buried at that gravesite. This is the most humble man who was worthy of being the author of Shulchan Aruch precisely because of his great humility. If you go to the city of Posen, where Rabbi Kiva Eger, the brilliant scholar, the brilliant rabbi whose works are studied in yeshivas throughout the world by great scholars, and it's considered the gold standard of Talmudic scholarship, on his gravestone also, it doesn't say about how, how he was such a genius, how he was such a scholar, how he was the rabbi of the greatest communities, and how he was uh, a great Torah leader, a fearless leader. All it says there is the date that he, was, that he passed away, and it describes him as being an Eved la'abde Hashem. He was a servant to the servants of God. He didn't see himself as being a towering leader and a great captain of the ship of Yisrael. He saw himself merely as a simple servant to the servants of Hashem. He looked at leadership as really being a, a position, not of power, but of service to the cloud, of service to the, to the community at large. That's also a very telling epitaph of Rabbi Vega. If you visit locally, if you go to Clifton, New Jersey. Uh, there is a, a section of the cemetery there that is the German Jewish community of New York City, of Washington Heights, the Breuer's community, as we call it, or the official name would be Kahala Das Yishurim, 
So the rabbi there was Rabbi Breuer, and then he took a co-rabbi at one point, and his name was, of course, Rav Shimon Schwab. Rav Shimon Schwab wrote books that have become classics in our time, Rav Schwab on Prayer, and his Hebrew Mayan Beis HaShoeva, and many other books. If you visit Rav Schwab's grave in Clifton, and it's a grave that I've been to many times because many of my relatives are buried in that a particular cemetery area. Uh, my father, Al-Vashalom, as well as my uncles and aunts um, and grandparents. Um, this is, uh, it, it says on his grave something very, very strange. On the bottom of his epitaph, there's sort of like a boxed-in verse, and it says as follows. It's a pasuk from Mishlei. Mechase fishav lo yatzliach. If a person tries to cover up his sins, he will not succeed. But if somebody admits and confesses and then abandons his sins, runs away from his sins, Yerucham Hashem will have mercy on him. And it's a very strange thing why he obviously insisted on that verse being on his grave. What was, he was a tzaddik, he was an unparalleled tzaddik. Why would he write on his grave that if you cover up your sins, you will not succeed? And it's a mystery. A lot of people always have wondered why he would insist on having that in his grave. And his sons write in their various biographies of their father that they don't know exactly the reason, but they have a theory as to why their father would insist on having that written on his grave. And that is because their father always felt, or the Schwab always felt, that when a person does slip up, and we all do, we all make mistakes in our life when we, we sin and we err and we, we accuse falsely and we do a lot of things in our life that we're not always proud of. If a person messes up, rather than pretend it didn't happen, rather than cover it up, if let's say you offend somebody or you spoke badly about somebody, instead of just like sort of sweeping it under the rug and not dealing with it, Rav Schwab always felt that you should confess to the person you should deal with it. You should face the music. Deal with the actions that you've done and take ownership of them and make sure that um, the person forgives you. Don't avoid it, but rather take it, face it head on. And so this was sort of the motif of his life, and that's why he insisted on his gravestone having this verse that really bespeaks this lesson that Mechaseb Shavuot said, don't think that you can cover over your sins. You can put a fig leaf over your sins. You have to admit, and then you have to abandon your sins, and then you will find the mercy and the love of Hashem. Those are a few epitaphs, Matzevis, that I wanted to uh, discuss uh, today with you. Also, uh, there are interesting facts uh, that I discovered on this journey uh, in producing this particular sefer about the Matzevas, about the Kibre Tzadikim, the, there was a, uh, a great famous argument between Rabbi Yenis and Eibershitz and Rabbi Yaakov Emden. This was the Emden-Eibershitz controversy over a, a topic that I don't, I don't really feel is part of the scope of within the scope of our discussion today, but suffice it to say that there was a, a very big uh, argument between these two rabbis. They both lived in the same city of Altona, and which is Hamburg, 
Uh, it used to be part of the Danish uh, government empire. Today it's, uh, it's in Germany. Um, the borders sort of moved and countries took over the city of Altona. But it was a very rabbinic city and there's great rabbis that serve the city and they're buried in the cemetery, in this large cemetery in Altona. And these two rabbis that were so at odds with one another, and in fact, all the rabbis of Europe ended up somehow getting, not all, but many got swept into this controversy, and they tried to, either they took sides from, uh, on one rabbi versus the other, or they tried to make peace between the two rabbis, but great, great uh, Gedalim got involved in this argument, and it, it sort of, um, it was a storm that spread throughout Europe. Fascinatingly, they are buried within a few graves of one another. The reason for that is because the latter, the one the, the, of those two rabbis who died later than the other, as he was on his deathbed, he was saying the name of the first rabbi, and he was saying, and he was embracing him and saying Shalom Aleichem, even though he was already in heaven, as if to say that there was peace already between them as he was leaving this world. So they were both buried very near each other because there was an understanding that in heaven they had already made peace between the two of them. That's a very interesting uh, thing to note. I'd like to share with you another very interesting story that Baruch Ber Libowitz is buried in a, in a cemetery in, in Warsaw. And he has, um, there's a story that's told about a girl in seminary and she was an American girl, I believe, and she was studying in a seminary in Israel. And she was looking at a picture of Rebarach Ber. And Rebarach Ber, by the way, was angelic looking. It was absolutely a beautiful uh, face, a Hadris Panim. But for some reason, which I can't understand, this girl made fun of uh, the appearance of Rebarach Ber. Again, I'm clueless as to what she could have possibly made fun of. But she said something against him, against his appearance. She made fun. Within a half an hour of doing so, she developed a very severe case of Bell's palsy, which is paralysis of the face. And she started going crazy, understandably. Her father flew in uh, from America to, to spend time with her to see what to do about this. And they were advised to go and visit Rav Steinemann, Rav Eilid Steinemann, the Gadol Adar. Rav Steinemann heard the story and he says, well, there's no doubt in my mind that she has to go, you have to arrange a minion to go and visit the, uh, the kever of Rebarach Ber, the grave of Rebarach Ber, and ask him mechila, ask him for forgiveness, and then everything should be fine. So that would be relatively easy, but for the fact that at the time, we didn't know exactly where Rebarach Ber's grave was. You see, what happened was that there was a, uh, he was buried um, in, during the war, and they very quickly buried him uh, in a grave right next to his father where he wanted to be buried, but there was no room. So they buried him perpendicular uh, to his father. So meaning all the graves were buried were, were in one direction, and he was buried in another. But they didn't have the tombstone, and, and no one knew exactly, and the, the cemetery was bombed out. They didn't know exactly where he was buried. That presents a very big problem. So they called into action a group of, uh, of, of activists that are very involved with Kibbutz Tzadikim. And what they did was they very quickly uh, got 
the greatest technology available, and they made uh, photographs from the air, and they figured out, they saw that there was one grave that was perpendicular to all the other graves, and they realized, based on testimonies, that that was a Baruch Bear's grave. Immediately, they sent a minion over to ask Mechila from that grave, from a Baruch Bear. They put up a brand, brand new gravestone, and immediately after they asked Mechila, the girl's face uh, came back to normal, Baruch Hashem. It's a fascinating story. There are so many graves uh, in America, meaning a lot of people travel all over to Israel and to visit the great tzaddikim there, or they go to Europe, they go to cities like Karastir, where there's a, a famous tzaddik that's buried there, or they go to the great Hasidic Rebbe's in Bells or in Kutsk, or in all the major cities, the, the Baal Shemtev's grave or the Vilna grave. But would you know that Near, right here, we're standing in Queens, within a stone's throw away. I could get into my car right now within 10 minutes. I could be by tremendous Sadiqim's graves. I mean, you don't need to always travel overseas. It's not always overseas that the Sadiqim are, but right here in New York, or wherever people are found, any city in the world, there's probably a good chance that you can go find great Sadiqim's graves. So, Right here, there's Rabbi Yaakov Yosef and Rabbi Pam, the second Rebetzin of Chavetz Chaim, believe it or not, is buried right here in Queens. Um, Rabbi Shleim HaHayman, Roshiva Tervedas, and many, many other tzaddikim are buried very close by. If you travel to Muncie, there is the great Skolana Rebbe's and the great Ribnitzer Rebbe. The Ribnitzer Rebbe has a grave that you can visit, and thousands of people visit it every single year. That... I know personally that when you dive him by his grave and you need something really badly, Yeshua's happened. You can get tremendous salvation if you dive in with a lot of kavana by his grave because he was a great tzaddik that really cared about people, loved Klai Yisrael, was my nefesh for Klai Yisrael, self-sacrifice on behalf of his people, many legends that I speak about in the book. And all of that, just on a short trip to Muncie, every time I go to Muncie, I try to stop off at the grave of the great Ribnitzer, and, and Baruch Hashem, it's a wonderful place you feel. I always say when I go to that cavern of the Ribnitzer Rebbe and the Skalana Rebbe, you feel like you're in Eretz Yisrael. You're in America, but there's some holiness there that's, um, that's reminiscent of the holiness of Eretz Yisrael. In the book, I also um, produced... Um, with my studio, a uh, many many maps of uh, of the cemeteries, beautiful color maps with legends of exactly where the tzaddikim are buried. So, if let's say you do go to the local Mount he- um, Mount Judah cemetery in Queens, and you don't know where uh, this cemetery, where Pam is buried, or you don't know where the Chavetz Chaim's Rebbetzin is buried, so you take my book. And there's maps, and it shows you exactly where each grave is. And the same is true if you want to visit that cemetery we spoke about before in Altona. You want to see where Yaakov Emden is buried, where Venus and Ibishitz is buried, where the other tzaddikim that are buried there are. are. Same thing is true in Frankfurt. Maris Machpelai have a, a beautiful laid out a floor plan of where all of the others are found in the Maris Machpelai. And other cemeteries in America, in Clifton, New Jersey, where Schwab and Breuer are buried, exactly in this great cemetery in Clifton. And so I tried to make the book 
as user friendly as possible so that whether you're sitting in your in your on your couch and reading it or you're actually taking it on your journeys yourself to Europe to Israel or in America you will find that you can stand by the grave of the tzaddikim either really or virtually and take away messages from them from their life and and be able to get closer to these gedalim by understanding their end of life uh, stories and by getting a new a new angle of who they were based on their 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 immortality, if you will. There's a medrash which I'd like to close with, a medrash in Tehillim. In Parakhaf, the Pasuk says, Yamcha Hashem Biyem Sara, Hashem should answer me on the day of anguish, on the day of stress. And the Medrash says that there's a mashal of a father and a son who are walking uh, on a road and trying to get home. And as children do, the son kept saying, Tati, are we almost there yet? Are we there yet? Like, you know, like what we used to do in the cars and, you know, on these road trips that we used to take. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And the father says, son, take this rule with you for the rest of your life. I'm going to give you a rule of thumb that you could take with you to know if we're almost home. As soon as you see the Beis HaKvaris, as soon as you see the cemetery, you know that, you're, that the city that we live in is close by. And the Medrash says that that means that when we have Tsaris, which is the equivalent of the cemetery, that's the mushal of the cemetery, then you should know that the Yeshua is close by. The salvation, the Gu'ula, is almost here. Or we're almost home, based on when we see the graves. And just in the context of this book, I think that we all have to deal with our immortality, the fact that we are, that with our mortality, rather, the fact that we're not immortal, we're not going to live forever. And nobody likes thinking about that. It makes us squirmish, it makes us uncomfortable, and understandably so. But as soon as we are able to face the reality of life, then the gu'ula is close. When we're able to go to the cemeteries and be able to take the life lessons of these tzaddikim and be inspired by them, be motivated by them to change perhaps the course of our own life, to uh, follow in their journey and to maybe learn a little more or give tzedakah a little better or to build more or to do more, to accomplish more in our own way, big or small. That's our personal gu'ula. When we're able to see the cemetery in sight, the gu'ula is close by. We should know that we're almost there. We're almost home. We're living through very difficult times. Our generation, I don't think, has ever seen such stress and turbulence as we've seen in the last half a year with the COVID uh, virus that's spreading and it doesn't seem to be under control at all, to the opposite. But when we're living in such times, we have to sort of take lessons about life, about death. And the more that we're able to absorb the lessons and try to really galvanize ourselves to change, the closer we will be to realizing our own self-worth, maximizing our own potential in life, 
the Gula is almost here, Mitz Hashem, but only if we're able to see the base island, to see the base Akvaris in front of us, and to use death as, as the great um, Rabnach Weinberg, the founder of Esha Torah, one of the great pioneers of Kirov, used to say that only when a person knows what he's willing to die for can he start living. Life and death are sort of closely related. If we see death in the truest sense of, you know, of, of that our lives are not forever, and that we have to really chaperain, as they say in Yiddish, we have to maximize all the experiences that we can in this life before the end, then we're able to actually change and empower ourselves to live a far greater and more important consequential life. I hope that all of you will consider um, ordering the book. It's available at artsgirl.com or in better Jewish bookstores. Um, there's, uh, I, I think, a great value to bring this book into your home. Hopefully it will bring blessing into your home and it will make uh, you, your, your, your spouse, your children, um, realize the importance of life through this great Jewish journey that we will take amidst Hashem together. Thank you very, very much. Okay, I'm really well. Okay, guys.